Welcome to Once Upon a Checklist. I'm Jer Thorpe, and this is the Disclaimer Episode. So, a few weeks ago, I couldn't sleep. Just as I'd gotten into bed, an idea had hopped into my brain about a little game. It was a little word game. So I spent hours laying awake, figuring out the mechanics of this thing. How the game would work, how I'd keep score, how people might go about solving the individual word puzzles. Eventually I did drift off to sleep, my head filled with wordy dreams, but as soon as I woke up, I went to my computer and I tried my best to build the thing. I'd never really built a game before. Making it got me really deep into the logic of games, so much so that I started applying that logic to the other things I was supposed to be thinking about, like my podcast. What, I asked myself, would a checklist look like if a checklist was a game? Maybe you'd read the list out, bird by bird, and people would have to guess where the checklist was recorded. The players would be using what they knew about the ranges of the different birds to narrow down the geographic possibilities to a single space. Wait a minute. This is actually kind of a good idea. Let's play Where is that checklist? Uh, 60 Canada geese, two American widgeon, four mallards, seven black ducks. This is Nathan Hood. He's a birder. He's 22 years old. He's an engineering student. I'm not going to tell you where he lives yet, but maybe we can start to figure it out. Uh, 60 Canada geese. So Canada geese are introduced in Europe, but they mostly live in North America. They have a really wide range there, though. They're really all over the continent. Two American widgeon, four mallards. The widgeons and the mallards, kind of useless to our game because they're, they're pretty much everywhere. Seven black ducks. Black ducks, though. These are American black ducks, and these birds give us our first chance to narrow things down a bit. They're found only on one side of the continent, east of the Mississippi. So, Nathan is probably on the east coast somewhere. Let's get him to list some more birds. One lesser scop, one white-winged scoter, three black scoters, semi, seven semi-plovers, 15 sanderling, two semi-sands. All right. All right, the scoters are the key here. White-winged scoters and black scoters. These are sea ducks, which really can only be seen on the coastline. A birder might see them from a boat. But these next birds, they definitely put Nathan on land. The semi-plovers. This is Nathan's birder short form for semi-palmated plovers. And the sanderlings. These are shorebirds, which maybe tells us that Nathan is in or near a wetland. Uh, Three redneck phalarope. 160 red phalarope, one greater yellow legs. Okay, here's when things get pretty weird. So phalaropes are technically shorebirds, too. They look a little bit like a sandpiper with a long bill. They're notable for their feeding behavior, where they swim around in fast circles. They form little whirlpools that bring up their prey in the muddy water. These two phalaropes, though, red and red-necked phalaropes, they're considered pelagic. That means they spend most of their time out at sea. Red phalaropes actually like to hang around bowhead whales. They feed in the muddy water that the whales stir up. A very lucky land-based birder might spot a red phalarope on the coast. Every once in a while, 
There was actually one seen just across from my apartment on the other side of the East River in 2020. But to see 160 of them? Uh, You might be thinking, maybe Nathan got on a boat, which is a really good guess. But he didn't. He's birding from a car, which makes this next section of the checklist really, really remarkable. Five Palmer and Jaeger, two Black Guillemots, three Savins Gulls, 40 Bonaparte's Gulls, one Little Gull, 30 Ringbilled Gulls, 80 Herring Gulls, one Lesser Blackbacked, nine Great Blackbacks, eight Common Terns, two Arctic Terns, three Wilson Storm Petrels, four White-Faced Storm Petrels, uh, 500 Leeches Storm Petrels, and one Northern Fulmar, two Trindade Petrels, one great shearwater and 30 cormorants. Okay, okay, okay. I want to say it again now so that it's as clear as day. Nathan is birding from a car. I saw a white-faced storm petrel last year on a pelagic expedition. It took us eight hours from Sheepshead Bay in Brooklyn to get out to the Hudson Canyon. It's right at the edge of the continental shelf. It's where the Gulf Stream passes by. Uh, white-faced storm pestrels are just absolutely delightful birds. They hop and skip off the crest of the waves with impossible grace. When the guide on the boat saw this bird, he shouted, White-faced storm petrel! So loud that my ears rang for the next ten minutes. Uh, we saw white-faced storm petrels from the boat, and we saw Wilson's storm petrels from the boat, and Leech's storm petrels, and great shearwaters yeah, from the boat. They're birds you might expect to see when you are hundreds of miles away from the shore. Now, we did not see a Trindade petrel on our pelagic trip. If we had seen one, everyone aboard would have gone completely bonkers. There's only one record of this bird from New York State. Up until September 24th, 2022, there had been exactly zero records of Trindade petrels in Canada. Ever. That was until Nathan Hood saw two of them from a car. It was really early in the morning, right at first light. I think it's, yeah, right when, so we had gotten, after we like went there, the light kind of started to come out, uh, started to get like slightly bright around in like an Iona. And at this point, like you could still, you couldn't really see anything on the lake. There was just barely enough light. And we were just like, at that point you can kind of scope and like, can and you know you maybe like get swabs coming but then like i guess just enough light there was at one point where there was enough light and it was just holy shit holy like holy smokes like there's just a sea of like leech of uh of leeches storm petrels just within this you know small like i said like a few hundred meters like wide channel and uh i think i think at that point it was like okay this is we're witnessing something something pretty spectacular this is a good chance and so it was crazy when it's, you know, first few minutes of like light and uh, got on this petrol out. And it was just like, at that point, it's just some like distant blob shearing in the waves. And it's like, okay, this is, this is interesting. This is like, this isn't a storm petrol. This is something, this is something bigger, this is something better. And uh, I, right away, I'm always, okay, like documentation, fire off as many shots as possible. And uh, we had it for a few minutes. We didn't really know what it, or at least I, I didn't really know what it was for 
reference I've never done. I've done pelagics in the West Coast, but I've never like seen any of these birds. So like extra, extra like insanity. It was just like seeing them all, you know, from my car, like you said, and or from our car and um and on shore. Uh, yeah, but like I look like I look at Brandon, he's just kind of like <laughs> it's like, okay, this is he's like, I'm pretty sure that was a Trindaddy petrol. And like, like I'm very confident it was like okay like and uh you know sure enough like go through the photos afterwards and it's like yeah that's yeah that's what i guess i should give away the answer to the game at this point nathan is on a sandbar beside a road in cape breton in nova scotia canada he traveled there from his college in waterloo ontario because he wanted to find out what it was like to bird in a hurricane which brings us to the disclaimer part of the disclaimer episode please Please don't do this. This podcast is in no way recommending going birding in a hurricane. You should put your own safety first. You should find shelter. You should watch bad disaster movies on a couch like I did during Hurricane Sandy. Do not, and I repeat, do not catch a flight to Cape Breton. Do not stay overnight in a motel. Do not spend the whole night awake because you're so excited about the birds that you might see in the morning. Yeah, we we flew into flew into Halifax and then, uh, yeah, I found some, like one of those discount airlines and then, yeah, made the f- four or five hour drive. Just took a rental and just kind of beat around the island. <laughs> we left the window open cause we were in the, the Airbnb we were staying at. We were hoping like, we just wanted to see what it was like. And it was like, obviously insane, like winds and you could hear so, like cracking and like you know, the power goes off and that. And so, you know, we didn't get much sleep. So I think the day started at like 3 a.m. when like Brandon woke. We weren't even like fully. I wasn't fully sleeping. We were, I know Brandon was like wide awake and uh, he was just like, like you want to go out? Like, let's just go see what's going on. And we did. Yeah. So we just like hopped in the car, just started driving around. And uh, and it was it was unreal. There's this one kind of memory that's burned in my mind of this like massive tree that had essentially just cut this Sydney, the main Sydney sign in half. Sydney, spelled with a Y, is the historic capital of Cape Breton, population 29,904. The exact place that Nathan was birding is southwest of town, around a big inland body of water called Brador Lake. It means golden arm lake. The Mi'kmaq people call it Pitupak. It's actually an inland tidal estuary. There are rivers that flow into it, so it's brackish, a mix of salt and freshwater. Some of Nathan's birds, the yellow legs and the gulls and the plovers, are probably regulars at the lake. Must have been a strange day for them with all these exotic visitors. Now, Nathan and Brandon, who's the other birder on this trip, they they didn't end up beside Brada Orr by accident. He actually picked this spot out, like, I think it was like six years ago or something before hurricane Dorian about like just some like rarity showing up. And then when like hurricane Dorian actually happened, they found a dead white faced storm petrel at the exact pin where he was like, he wanted to go if he had gone during that storm. Brandon's hunch based on that one dead storm petrel turned out to be right on the mark. I could spend the rest of the podcast just listing all of the amazing things they saw and listening to Nathan tell stories about the day. You know, at one point, God, this is, this is so Canadian. Nathan and Brandon were taking shelter beside a little Canada post office. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, I can't post like, you know, your typical, uh, it was like really good vantage point. It was at this like top of this like hill and like there's like nice grassy slopes on the other side. And uh, it was a, yeah, obviously the perfect spot. And we actually had like really good stuff from there. They're beside this post office for a while. <laughs> normal birders spotting storm petrels from beside the post office when they realize they got a problem. We were, we noticed we had like a flat tire halfway through, um, which we were like, oh no, like this is going to like ruin the day. But it ended up giving us like, I think we, uh, that's where we had like Tropic Bird and that's where we had the white first, first white face petrol, white face storm petrol and like long tailed Jaeger and like more Sabin's gulls and that. But yeah, it was like this perfect little so spot. They got a flat tire. It's the middle of a hurricane. What do you do? Well, in typical Nova Scotia fashion, someone stopped by and they offered to help. We like ran into some like local. He um, he like came by and was like, "It's like, oh, I see you got a flat." So he's like, "Come to my come to my sh- my house and uh, I'll I'll go patch it up for you." Like like classic like maritime you know classic. hospitality. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like a man like saved our day basically. And uh, yeah, like sure enough, like he had he fixed it in you know like twenty minutes. And we were back. I actually the asked Nathan whether they got a lot of strange looks out there birding in a hurricane. He said, "No, not really." Which makes sense in Cape Breton. This is a place that knows all about weather, about storms coming in from the sea and about helping out neighbors. It's built right into the DNA of the community. Nathan did say that people on the plane, though, they were pretty surprised to hear that that these guys were going out birding. Pretty much everyone else was trying to get home to batten down the hatches, except for one other guy on the plane who was going out surfing. You know... One thing that'll happen to you if you start birding is that you'll slowly, inevitably, you'll start to think like a bird. If you're looking for a particular species, you'll kind of get into that species and think about where they might want to be. A purple sandpiper, for instance, is a bird that likes to be on a rocky shore with the spray of the surf, so that's where you go look for them. A horned lark It likes open ground. The fewer trees and bushes, the better. A gravel parking lot, that's good horned lark territory. A red crossbill is happiest in a grove of eastern white pines. So if you're looking for crossbills and you're driving, you see the right kind of trees, you're thinking, ha, if I was a bird, that's where I'd be. You start asking yourself questions like, if I were a bird, where would I be on this hot summer day? You know, probably near a pond or a stream. He might not have known it when he was getting on that plane, but Nathan was thinking like a bird, too. I'm Emily Shepard, and I'm a professor in the Department of Biosciences at Swansea University. Dr. Shepard studies animal movement. She focuses specifically on flight. She's part of the Swansea Laboratory for Animal Movement, which has a pretty great acronym, SLAM. I called Emily because of a paper that she'd co-authored about a type of a seabird called a streaked shearwater. It's a big bird with a wingspan of around five feet, which like most seabirds, spends most of its life on the open ocean. The paper was built around 11 years of data, GPS paths of individual birds, as they made their way around the Pacific Ocean, doing shearwater things. Now, 
I know a good data set when I see one. So the first thing I asked about is where it came from. She told me that another scientist, Ken Yoda, had collected the data and that she found out about it through a pretty remarkable coincidence. My husband, who's also an ornithologist, was out in Japan um, when a really powerful typhoon hit. Um, and they were, they were in Japan, actually, in the city before going to the field and kind of, um, you know, my husband was looking out the window and there were sort of chairs being swept down the street and people practically clinging onto lampposts. And it was so extreme. Um, and he just, he and Ken started chatting and, and, and my husband said, well, how do they cope? What do they do, these birds, where... Um, when they're, they're out at sea, there is nowhere to hide. That's a good question, right? Uh, seabirds, like Cape Bretoners, they have to deal with storms all the time. Small, inconveniencing ones, but also these huge, destructive ones. On the open ocean, there's quite literally nowhere to go. So if you're a streaked shearwater and there's a big typhoon heading your way, what do you do? Well, it was, it was really interesting because... Um, their response depends on where they are. So normally these ships, these, these shearwaters, they're foraging out in the Sea of Japan. And they spend quite a lot of time tracking up um, along the, the coast of Honshu, which is the main island of Japan. And if they are sandwiched between the storm and the land when the, when the storm comes through, and if it's a really, really strong t- storm, so um, a severe tropical storm or, or a, a cyclone, um, which is actually the same as typhoon, they're just called different things in that part of the world. Um, so if they're sandwiched between the storm and the land, birds will fly away from the land and towards the eye of the storm. So these birds, if they find themselves between an oncoming storm and the land, they'll actually purposely fly towards the storm. Like Nathan and Brandon and the surfer on the plane, they'll go right into it. This is because it's a really bad outcome for the birds to end up on land. And what we're suggesting in the paper is that it's not really strong wind speeds that are dangerous for them. It's the combination of really strong wind speeds and being close to land. Because if the wind is um, blowing faster than you can fly, it's going to drift you in, in a certain direction. And that's fine. You can if it if you end up drifting around the storm, but it is not fine if you are shearwater and you end up being drifted over land. Um, that's where the real risk lies. Most of these big seabirds they they can't take off without a long run up. So on land they might easily end up in a place where they they just can't get back into the air. There are also all kinds of predators on land that these birds don't normally have to deal with. They're big raptors like hawks and eagles. There's corvids, crows and ravens, ground-based predators like raccoons and coyotes. And there are all kinds of other dangers. Nathan caught one tragic vignette of this while he was out birding in the storm. We had this, like, I think the first redneck fowler up of the day. We had, like, um, Brandon, like, picked it up. And it was, like, really close to shore. We're like, oh, cool. Like, that's that's different. And like, and then all of a sudden I see this fowler like come up and like flies like directly over us, uh, look back. And then it just like collides directly into a power line. And it's like, you know, tumbles to the ground. And, uh, I think I just, I think I just like blurted out some, like, it was like, just like, Oh, like, Oh no. The shearwaters whose data that Dr. Shepard studied, they absolutely don't want to end up in the situation that this fowler rope ended up in. So they'll take their chances flying right into the storm. Uh, They have an advantage. If you remember from the beginning of the episode, 
The phalaropes are actually shorebirds, so they're not really built to fly in extremely high winds. But the big shearwaters, they're in an order called procellariforms, and they sure are. <laughs> in fact, high winds, they're kind of their jam. So dynamic soaring is a way of extracting energy from the wind, of using the energy to fly without flapping. And um, it all depends on this vertical gradient in wind speed. So down close to any substrate, whether it's the, the sea or the land, um, the wind is stilled because of the friction close to the surface. And as you increase in height, then quite rapidly the wind speed increases. So a bird flying very low to any surface will experience um, much less wind than it will flying higher. And um, if you, you can also imagine that when you have these shifting waves, um, if the wind is blowing over a wave and then behind a wave, you'll have this pocket where actually the air is, is, is really um, very still. So a bird, what, what these birds would, can do when they're dynamic soaring is actually they glide along and they pull up. And normally when a bird just pulls up, so sorry, this whole time, just consider that they're not flapping. So this bird is gliding along and it pulls up. And normally, if you pull up, you increase your altitude, you do that at the penalty or there's a cost of reducing your speed. But in this scenario, winds and bird can pull up, increase its altitude, and then the wind is blowing um, stronger at the higher altitude. So there's even more wind blowing over its, its wings. So it still has the same airspeed. And it actually can even kind of basically take an extra injection of energy from the wind because these birds go belly into wind. So then the wind is kind of um, is, is uh, helping to accelerate them um, as it's hitting their wings and their belly and it accelerates the bird. So the bird therefore has pulled up, it's got height and it's got more speed, and then it can go swoop down into the trough between the waves again and carrying on without flapping. And, and if, if, you know, then it, it will eventually slow down. But it need, when it needs another injection, injection of energy, it just pulls up into the wind again and repeats this whole cycle. That's the scientific explanation of it. In real life, though, it's just, oh, it's just beautiful. You can pick out a procellariform because it'll almost never be flying over the water in a straight line. It'll be soaring and swooping in these high arcs. When I was out on the boat in the Gulf Stream, this is how the guides would call out a bird that they couldn't yet identify. High arcing bird at three o'clock. Emily's shearwaters, by the way, these streaky shearwaters, they do something that all shearwaters do. It's actually what gives them their name. On the low part of these dynamic soaring arcs, they'll fly so close to the surface that on rare occasions, one of their primary wing feathers will actually touch the sea. It'll leave a clean line in the water. I saw a great shearwater do this once, and it was, it was one of the most sublime moments of my life. I asked Emily about it. Yeah, it is a really interesting question, actually. Um... And I don't have an answer. I mean, it must, having, you know, when you're moving that fast, having contact with the water certainly has its risks <laughs> um, because just the the forces that's that's going to be exerted on the wing by suddenly making contact with, with, um, with, the, with the water itself. Um, so it's true. It's a fascinating point. I think somebody who's, um, you know, much more fluent on the aeronautical side of things would never, we'd need to have a think about that. Um, maybe I'll ask One of the reasons that seabirds are so fascinating to scientists 
to birders, to humans, is because we don't know very much about them. They live in a totally different world than we do, the open ocean. I mean, these birds can't even comprehend the idea, the concept of perching. Perching? On what? You know, going on a pelagic cruise is like briefly birding another planet. It's only after the last couple decades, with GPS technologies, that scientists like Emily have even started to understand what goes on out there during these long stretches of time that these birds spend at sea. Look at the eBird map of all the sightings for the Trindage petrel, the bird that Nathan saw in the dark in a hurricane for the first time in Canada, and you'll see 380 dots spaced sparsely across the Atlantic. Most of these points are from birders on pelagic trips or on cruise ships, so they're in places where cruise ships go. There are whole swaths of the ocean where we know these birds live, but they're blank just because it's so hard. It's so expensive to go out there and look for them. There's a picture that I love that Nathan took. It's a Trindage petrel, and it's low to the water. It's got this beautiful silhouette, sharp wingtips, and you can feel some of its grace and speed. In the background, you expect to see the open ocean, but instead there's land. It's this blurry row of conifers. There's a beach. I feel like if you squint hard enough, you might be able to see that post office. Nathan and Brandon were out there for this brief merging of worlds, an incursion, a few hours where the open sea blended with the land. It sounds like something in a dream. (laughs) Once Upon a Checklist is a listener-supported podcast, and I am really very grateful to those of you who subscribe. It means a lot. I want to apologize for the delay between this episode and the last one. This autumn was... It was bad. The less that is said about it, the better. But episode four is already underway, and it should find itself in your podcast boxes before the end of January. They have lots of great episodes planned for 2023, including a kid's episode. You can visit the blog at ouac.substack.com to find some pictures from Nathan's podcast and to find a link to Dr. Shepard's paper. You'll also find all of the old episodes there, along with transcripts and other stuff. Hopefully there'll be some new Once Upon a Checklist merch arriving soon, too. Oh, and I'm working on a real version of Where is that checklist? I'll post it on the blog when it's ready to play. Thanks for listening.